you guys. I feel like it's been forever since I've gotten to preach to y'all, so I'm excited. That means you're probably in for a long sermon this morning. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do have a lot that I want to get through, though. Um, if you don't know me, by the way, my name is Grant. I am a lead pastor here at H2O Church. And uh, if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been going through this series called Who Is This Man? And uh, we've been trying to look at some of the major events in Jesus' life to give us a really good picture of who he is, because there's so many conflicting ideas that you'll hear in the world today about who Jesus is. Some people think that he's a myth. Some people think that uh, he was just a really great teacher. Uh, Some people, like myself, believe that he was actually God in the flesh, what the Bible teaches that he is. And, And so the disciples... Over there, uh, as they were spending more and more time with Jesus, started to realize that this guy is more than anything we may have ever thought that he was. Okay, uh, they, they get to spend day in, day out with Jesus. Their lives start to be shaped by him, and slowly over time, it, it starts to unfold that man, th- this guy is something really, really special. And, and they treasured their time getting to be with him. You. you uh, learned last week as Ken was preaching about how uh, Jesus was the greatest leader ever because he was the greatest servant ever. You know, so not, most leaders try to assert their authority over people um, and have this structure where, where everybody knows that they're more powerful than other people. But Jesus, although he's greater than everybody, was humble enough to wash the feet of his disciples. And he says, man, if, if you want to be like me, then you need to wash each other's feet as well. And we learn humility from that. Well, that happened at something called the Last Supper. It's the last meal that Jesus got to share with his disciples before he would be betrayed and crucified. And uh, the Apostle John actually spends a lot of time in his gospel on the events that happened that night. Uh, he gets into this long conversation with his disciples after this, this thing that he does with foot washing. And that's what we're going to be looking in on today. Now, this covers about four chapters worth of material in John's gospel, and there's only 21 chapters in the book. So uh, there's a lot of material. I'm not going to be able to be completely exhaustive in, in what we go through today. I have to pick out uh, what I've kind of called seven different guideposts that I want to guide our uh, time this morning as we're going to try and trek through uh, some of the big points of this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. But the reason this is so significant is because in this conversation, Jesus is trying to get his disciples ready for something that he knows is going to absolutely shake their world. I don't know if you've ever had a, something like that happen in your life where it came completely unexpected, um, but, but I know that when really, really big life events happen, it can help to have somebody prepare you a little bit for them first. And even though Jesus had continually told his disciples, hey, I'm going to have to go die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. They still didn't really get it. And so now finally, in these, these final hours that Jesus had before this time, he really starts to lay into them to help them understand, hey, guys, I need you to get ready for what's about to happen here. And this is how I want you to, to live while I'm gone. And so we don't have Jesus here in the flesh with us today either, right? So the the way that he directs his disciples to live in this time where he says, hey, I'm going to be leaving you in the body. I want you to know these things. We would do well to pay attention to them too, right? Because we're in the same situation that the disciples were about to find themselves in right after this conversation wrapped up. So 
with the amount of material that we're going to be covering today, I was talking to Cass beforehand, and she asked, you know, how do you feel about your sermon this morning? I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Um, it's kind of, I feel like it's more like a chicken nugget sermon rather than like a chicken sandwich sermon, if that makes sense. Um, it, it was explaining, you know, you go to Chick-fil-A, I'm more of a chicken sandwich guy, but I know a lot of people really like those nuggets too. Nuggets are good. Um, but, but the reason I say that is I, I have a lot of kind of smaller points, maybe nuggets that you're going to be able to take out of this conversation, but maybe not like one giant piece of chicken that you're going to be able to walk away with. Uh, but I, I hope that the, the, the nuggets will still be helpful for you, okay? So, uh, I, I call them seven guideposts that I have the sermon divided into, but maybe you can call them seven nuggets if you want. Um, a- anyway, I'm going to just kind of list them off for you here, and then we're going to pray and get into our scripture reading. So first guidepost, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to leave. Then he tells them that they're going to abandon him. Then he tells them that there's a reason for why it is that he's leaving. He tells them how to get where he's going. He tells them uh, that even though he's going to be gone in the flesh, that they can still actually be with him. Uh, He tells them that they're going to be hated. There's going to be people that oppose them. And then he tells them that he and them are going to overcome in the end. Okay? So you guys ready? I'm excited to get into this. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to guide us as we dive into our text this morning, and and we'll get into it. God, uh, you are good. You are awesome. You are mighty. And Father, we just, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge it in what we sang before this. God, we acknowledge in our time now as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word. God, I pray against any kind of distraction, any kind of uh, fatigue, any kind of uh, just anything else, Lord, that may distract us from being able to take in your word. God, I pray that your word uh, would cut us to our hearts this morning. Lord, that you would do um, exactly what you want to in our lives. Lord, if you want to challenge us, that you would challenge us. If you want to encourage us, that you would encourage us. God, if you want to convict us, you convict us. Whatever whatever you want to do, Lord, we want to open up our hearts to you uh, to speak to us this morning. God, I pray that you would work through me, that you would let my words be your words. God, that I pray that all of us, as our time of study this morning, as a result of that, we would grow closer to you, and that we'd fall more in love with you. Uh, we thank you for who you are, God. We lift up this time to you. And it's in your son's awesome name we pray. Amen. All right, so the uh, first block of scripture that we're going to be getting into today comes from John chapter 13. And uh, we're going to start at verse 33 and read through 38. Here's what Jesus said. Little children... I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. All right, so the the first guidepost that I kind of pulled out of this here is that Jesus is getting these disciples ready for the fact that he is going to be leaving. Right? He wants them to realize uh, that he's going somewhere, and not, not only is he going somewhere, but he's saying, hey, the places I'm going, you guys can't come to. 
And this has got to be confusing for the disciples, right? Because for the past three years, they've gone everywhere with Jesus. And, and they've been walking. They didn't have cars either. They didn't have like a big 15-passenger van, although that would have been sweet. They're walking, right? All, all around these places, uh, following Jesus wherever it is that he goes. They've seen him do all these kind of incredible things. And, and they have uh, developed this incredible faith in him and this incredible loyalty to him. So this idea that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to go somewhere and you're not going to be able to come with me has got to be kind of a, a painful thing to the disciples. And uh, so, sometimes... God has plans where it's like, hey, I need to go do something, or I'm going to go send this person off some way, uh, somewhere that you uh, may not like, but it's necessary. Peter didn't like the idea that Jesus had to go, but Jesus had to go because it was worth it. You guys seen that video of the little girl on the internet? I think it's a pretty famous video by now, uh, where she's saying, don't leave me. The mom, the mom has to go to work. She's complaining about not leaving. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but... Um, Anyway, there's this idea where it's like, kids don't understand sometimes why their parents have to leave, okay? Parents have to leave because they need to go work, they need to make money, they need to be able to provide for the family. But as a child, sometimes you don't understand that that's really what's best. And sometimes we don't like God's plans, right? Sometimes he calls us or our friends to places that we would rather them not go. I got very close to a lot of people over my time in college um, they still mean a lot to me, but unfortunately, most of them I don't get to see on a very regular basis anymore. Uh, my two best friends uh, one, from college, one of them lives in Toledo, the other one lives in Texas. You guys got to meet him uh, at Fall Getaway. And, and it's like, man, I, I don't get to see these guys. I'd love it if we lived in the same city and we were able to do ministry together. But the Lord has called uh, all of us to different places. This past weekend, I was out in Washington State at a, a conference. It was full of collegiate pastors from all around the country, and um, th these guys that were hosting it had just done an incredible job of planting churches on college campuses. And one of the most powerful moments of the weekend, actually, was when uh, one of the guys stood up and he read this poem that was talking about uh, just kind of how he had pictured his life was going to play out, how he had hoped that his life was going to play out, and then sharing how it had actually ended up to be very different. And he talked about how a lot of people had told him, man, in order for you to have success in life, you should think about where it is that you want to be when you're old, like when you're 80, 90 years old, whatever, um, and then reverse engineer your life to get to that point. And he said that when he thought about that, he's like, man, I envisioned myself as an old man sitting on the porch with my six closest friends as, as we all just get to talk and share stories with each other. And the, the fact of the matter is, none of those six friends live near him anymore. Two of them went off to plant a church somewhere else in the state. Another two went off to plant a church in China. Another two went down to help a church that needed it in Texas. But the reality is that God, God wrecked his plans. That wasn't what he wanted. But in order for God's kingdom to move forward, he was calling people to different places. And living a life that's obedient to God isn't always the most comfortable thing. We have to realize that. We have to be willing to submit to what his plans are rather than what ours are. And you know, the fact that God's plans are different from ours can oftentimes really affect our faithfulness. You know, Peter, by all measures, was a really, really loyal guy. You know, he'd stuck with Jesus through all this time. There was plenty of times in the scripture where you can see that Jesus had other followers that turned away from him, but Peter was always there. He says, Jesus, I'll follow you all the way even to death. And you know what? He actually kind of shows this because in a few hours, Jesus would actually be arrested and there'd like a bunch of guards that would come to do this. Peter gets out his sword and cuts off one of their ears. Like he's ready to fight, right? 
So, so I, I believe him even in this idea where he says, yeah, uh, I, I'm ready to die for you. But the fact of the matter is that, Jesus, that, that Peter was only willing to follow Jesus under circumstances that he could think of. He was willing to follow Jesus on his own terms. But when Jesus threw a curveball to where, Peter, you don't even know what's going to happen. You think you're loyal to me, but the things that are about to happen are actually going to show that maybe you're not quite as loyal as you think you are. You know, we oftentimes as young people, as college students, you, you build this zeal for Jesus and you start to think, man, I'm going to be faithful to God no matter what. And I hope that that's true. Just like Peter, uh, I wish that this was true. But I have to ask you, if, if you're not married 20 years from now, are you still going to be faithful to Jesus? If your spouse divorces you 20 years from now, are you still going to be faithful to Jesus? What if your child's born with a genetic disease or maybe even dies? Are you still going to be faithful to Jesus? What if your friends betray you or your church hurts you? Will you still be faithful to Jesus? You see, we don't know how life is going to turn out. And we can, we can predict a million things. We, we can imagine a lot of these different scenarios. But in all the scenarios that the Apostle Peter, one of the most loyal people you could probably think of, uh, in all the scenarios he could imagine, none of them unfolded in a way where he would think that that very night he would deny even knowing this man that he said he would die for. Sometimes life can change in a way that we don't expect. And I don't say this to scare you. I say this to prepare you. To prepare you to realize that, man, whatever may come in your life, your, your devotion to Jesus cannot be based upon saying, as long as everything turns out the way I want it to, I will follow Jesus. It can't. And Peter learned that. Let's move on in our reading. John 14, 1 through 6 says this. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus moves on to help them realize, hey, I'm not just going because I'm tired of hanging out with you guys, okay? I'm not just leaving because I'm sick of this world or anything like that. I'm going for a reason. I have a very specific reason for why I'm going. And he tells us the reason that I'm going is because I'm going to prepare a place for you. He tells us I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. What an amazing gift that is. Is there anything that could be better than dwelling in the house of the Lord? There isn't. Literally, God, is, he's all good. He's all powerful. He's the creator of all good things. And literally, Jesus says, hey, I'm going so that I can prepare a place for you to come live with him. Now, that's an incredible gift, right? Incredible. Much better than anything that we could hope for. But the fact of the matter is that sacrifice would be necessary in order to make this happen. And just like the disciples didn't want to see Jesus leave, uh, oftentimes we don't want to have sacrifice in our lives to see great things happen. We all want blessing, but we don't want sacrifice that's required before blessing. Everyone wants to get A's in their classes, but they don't want to study. Everyone wants good health, but they don't want to eat right and exercise. 
Everyone wants a good marriage, but they don't want to be selfless enough to make this happen. We know that great things rarely, if ever, come without sacrifice. So we have to ask ourselves, if great things almost never come without sacrifice, then why is it that we would think that eternal life in heaven, dwelling with the Father, would come without sacrifice? I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about that, right? Like, if we know that we can't even get good grades or have a healthy body without sacrifice, how in the world do we get the idea that we can get heaven without sacrifice? I mean, just, just think about how absurd that is. And I know that this is kind of the default that most people live out of, though, which is that uh, th- this idea of like, well, yeah, everything will just turn out good in the end, and we're all going to get to go live in eternal paradise. And I'm thinking, what in the world makes you think that? You, you, you can't get hardly anything good for nothing, and, and you're telling me that you think that somehow everyone is just going to end up in paradise and heaven and be perfect with no sacrifice that's necessary. Mediocrity. When has mediocrity ever gotten anything great? It hasn't. Mediocrity won't even get you a 4.0 GPA. But somehow we think that mediocrity will give us heaven. Now, I don't want you to get confused about what I'm saying here. Okay, and I don't want you to hear this and think, you're right, mediocrity won't get me to heaven. So I need to start trying really, really hard. Let me be a person uh, that, that does everything that I can to impress God so that in order, uh, once my life is done, he's going to be so pleased with me that then I'll have earned my way into heaven. Because you're right, Grant, mediocrity won't get me in. But I'll live well enough in a way that I impress God to where he will. And the, the fact of the matter is that still is not going to be good enough. It won't. There's some things that you won't be good enough to do no matter how hard you try, okay? I really love baseball. I could practice all day uh, to, to be the best baseball player I could possibly be. I'm never going to make it to the major leagues. I'm just not. I, I understand that now, um, <laughs> okay? Uh, even my best wouldn't be good enough to get into the major leagues, okay? And heaven is a lot harder to make it into than the major leagues, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, that you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if anyone seemed righteous, it was those guys. The fact of the matter is that no one can be righteous enough to make it into heaven. You can't. The, the Bible even talks about how our, our, even our, our good deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. You, you understand the wickedness that's inside you. You understand the bad thoughts that you have all the time. You understand that there is no way that you could offer anything good enough to God to get the gift that's as great as we believe heaven is. And this is why Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for us. Because if great things don't come without sacrifice, and we don't have what it takes to be able to sacrifice, then somebody else is going to need to make that happen. And that's what Jesus did. That's why he had to go. I'm going to prepare a place. There's no way you're going to make it there. So let me go and get it ready for you. There's something that I've got to do to make this happen. And that's what he's preparing the disciples for You know, this is the essence of the gospel, this this idea that, man, We've been separated from God, and we want what's good. We want a, a perfect place in heaven. We want to dwell with him for eternity, but we realize that that's never going to happen. We realize that our sin has created this chasm between us and God to where we could never be in his presence. We want this perfect place, but if we went there, it wouldn't be perfect anymore, would it? 
And, and so we realize, man, okay, there, there's a problem. How is God going to fix this? And he says, I'll take care of it. I'm going to step in. Jesus comes. He walks in the flesh, and, and he lives a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live. He dies on the cross, and the just God is able to punish sin on the cross because he says, I'm just. I'm not going to let sin go unpunished. And that's a good thing. We don't want sin to go unpunished. We don't want it. We don't like it when a criminal goes free without having to pay. And so he says, instead of making you pay, though, I'm going to make Jesus pay. I'm going to take it upon my, myself. I'm going to crush my own son so that you could be forgiven. And that's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that's going to make it possible for you to come and be with me. And not just to get out of hell, right? That's not what it says. It's not just for us to escape the fires of hell. No, it's so that we can dwell in the house of the Father. And I think that we miss out on this so much. That, that sometimes we think the gospel is just about getting out of hell. But we don't realize that really that, that's, not, that's not even the main thing. The main thing is that God is calling us into relationship with himself. Man, it, it's more than pity. It's love. And there's a huge difference between those things. And, and if, if the end goal of the gospel is for us to be reunited with the Lord and to be living in the Father's house, the cool thing is we get to start that right now. Yes, we still live in the flesh. Yes, we still uh, have temptation. Yes, we still deal with sin, all these kind of things. But we've been made new people. We've been given forgiveness. And, and, and right now, we start to get a taste of what it's like to dwell with the Lord. And his Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell within us. And one day, these fleshly bodies, they're going to be done away with. The Bible talks about what was sown perishable. It's going to be raised imperishable. And we're going to get to dwell with the Lord. That's why Jesus had to go. You see, sometimes God's plans are difficult. Sometimes we don't like them. I'm sure the disciples hated the fact that their best friend was about to leave them. But it needed to happen for something greater to take place. This is the only way for us to be reunited with the Father. And Jesus makes this clear. He says it straight up. It can't get any more clear than John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And everything that I just said, when you understand the perfect justice of God and the perfect love of God, you realize that reconciliation with God is impossible outside of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Just, just think about it. This is, you don't even need John 14, 6 to understand this. And there's other verses in the Bible that are explicit about this too. Uh, Peter makes a similar statement in Acts chapter 4. But, but even outside of those things, the clear teaching of the Bible makes it show that there's no way we can be saved outside of Jesus. Otherwise, the cross is actually worthless. Why would Jesus be crucified if he didn't need to be? He was praying, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And what happened? The cup was not taken from him. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath. If you believe that salvation is possible outside of Christ, then you're literally saying that the cross was unnecessary. I know that this is a controversial message, and it's one of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity. I understand that. But the, the fact of the matter is the enemy wants to make us believe that there are many different ways to God. This is a common tactic of enemies to try to confuse, to try to deceive. In, in World War II, uh, the Nazis ran this, this thing called Operation Grief, which was basically, it was near the end of the war after the Allies uh, had, had landed in France on D-Day. They started to take back France, and now they, they started to push into Germany. And uh, for the first time, the Nazis were going to have to start fighting on their own home soil. 
and they realized that they needed to do something to try and try and keep to slow the allies advance and so what they did is they started changing street signs they started infiltrating the army trying to give people false directions about where to go uh, giving them false information, all these kind of things, right? And that's the exact thing that our enemy does to us. He changes street signs. He makes us think that roads go to places that they don't actually go. And we live in a world full uh, of deceptions by our enemy that says, all roads lead to heaven. It doesn't matter. The, the old classic illustration, oh, all religions are just different roads kind of going up the same mountain that have this, the same destination. Yeah, that's what the enemy wants you to think. That's not what Jesus says. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus makes it clear that there's no way to the Father but through him. Praise God that there's any way at all. Praise God that there is any way at all because we are helpless outside of him. The cool thing is that this message can be preached to everybody. You don't have to be a certain race or age or ethnicity or anything like that to get this. Let's move on and see what Jesus had to say. We're going to skip over to John chapter 15 now. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so th this is really cool, right? Because in this whole conversation, one of the things that we've seen is Jesus getting the disciples ready to realize that he's going to be leaving them in the flesh. Yet now he comes and starts to tell them, hey, abide with me, abide in me. And he starts communicating this idea that even though I'm going to be gone in the flesh, it doesn't mean that you have to be out of touch with me. That even though I'm not going to be walking with you physically anymore, you can still connect with me spiritually. And matter of fact, it's not just that you can connect with me spiritually, it's that you must connect with me spiritually. Because this is the only way that you're going to have any effect on this world. This is the only way that you can be fruitful as a Christian is if you abide in him. And notice what he says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no middle ground there. It's either if you abide in Jesus, you will bear fruit. If you don't, you will not. It's that simple. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is, thinking that we can produce fruit outside of being connected to Jesus is as unreasonable as thinking that the branch of a grapevine can somehow produce grapes if it's not connected to the vine. We realize that's completely impossible. It has no way to get the nutrients that it needs. It's completely cut off from its life source. And Jesus is saying, even though you're not going to get to speak with me, touch me anymore, anything like that, you're not going to be connected, you're not going to be cut off from the life source. You're still going to have the opportunity to connect with me, 
to abide, that means to stay, to act in accordance with. And so even though I'm not going to be here in the flesh anymore, you still know what it's like to follow me. You can still pray to me. You can, you, you can still spend time with me even though I'm not here in the body. And, and our, our, dependence on, uh, our, our success in the Christian life is purely dependent upon this. Will we abide in Christ? Do you want to produce spiritual fruit? Do you want to grow in godliness? Do you want to be used to help others come to know Christ or grow closer to him? If that's the case, then you must learn to abide in Jesus. And so how do we abide? Well, he tells us one of the ways we abide is to keep his commandments, right? We, we see clearly here that abiding is related to obeying. So he, he talks about, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience is important, right? Obedience doesn't save us, but if we want to be people that are faithful to the Lord and that produce fruit, then we have to understand that obedience is a very significant thing in the Christian life. And notice that what Jesus really cares about, he even goes on to say, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Here he comes back to this, right? Earlier in his life, he said uh, that the greatest commandment was to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. And all the law and the prophets hung on these two things. He simplifies it for us. If we can learn to love others, we can learn to be obedient to Christ. Now, in this context, it seems like Jesus is primarily focusing on loving other believers. Um, but we know that he also clearly taught us that we are not just to love other believers, but also to love our enemies. And if we follow Jesus faithfully, we can expect that we will indeed have enemies. Look at what he said later in this chapter, John 15, verses 18 through 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. I think that sometimes we forget the fact that we follow a murdered Savior. Like, we, we forget that sometimes because we look back and we have such an admiration for Jesus that uh, he's so cool and he's so awesome that it can always become easy to forget that there were a lot of people that really hated him. And, and so then we get surprised somehow when the world hates us. And, and, you know, we don't want the world to hate us because we're doing something stupid, right? Like, if we suffer for our unrighteousness, then, then that's on us. But the fact of the matter is Jesus never did anything wrong and he was murdered on the cross as a criminal, hanging in between two criminals. And Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand this. Man, if the world hated me, you can expect that it's going to do the same to you. And you might say, why? Why would that happen? Jesus never did anything but love anybody. I, tr I, don't, I try to do nothing but love people. Why would they hate me? And you know, I, I hope that you don't experience much hate in your life because of following Jesus. But there's, there's several reasons for why the world would hate us. One, we believe that there's one truth. This is an unpopular stance, that, 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 that there really is a right and a wrong. There's, there's one thing that's true, and there, everyone's truth can't just be relative. We believe that all people are guilty sinners that are worthy of God's punishment. We believe that we are, we are naturally and justly under God's wrath. 
and, and that outside of Jesus there is no hope for our forgiveness, that is a difficult message and the world does not like that. We believe that God is the one that decides what is right and what is wrong. And this means that we're no longer king of our own lives. We can no longer be our own God, but he has to be on the throne. This includes things like our sexual behavior, which is a common hot-button topic for us today. As a Christian, you might be called a bigot because you believe what God and the Bible teaches about sexuality rather than what our culture does. Go on down the list. As times change, hot-button issues change. But the fact of the matter is, if we stand on the word of God rather than on the, the common opinion of our culture, we can expect conflict. And so we have to love people well through that. And this is cool, right? Because that's what Jesus did. Even though people uh, were awful to him, they were mean to him, and they murdered him, he still loved them. He literally was praying for these dudes while they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like that, that's, that's incredible and that's the, that's the attitude that we need to have as Christians. You're never really going to be able to truly grow and mature in your faith until you're more interested in following Jesus than you are about gaining the approval of this world. You have to come, seriously, I, I hope some of you guys have a come to Jesus moment that realize, what do I really care about more? being accepted by my peers, my society, my family, whatever it may be, or being faithful to Jesus. This was a really impactful realization for me. I realized that, that I was okay with being a Jesus freak. And not just that, that I, that I actually wanted to be, right? Like, that's actually a badge of honor in some ways. Like, I, I want people to think of Jesus when they think of me. I want them to think of my zeal for him and my love for him. And that doesn't mean that I don't want to relate to anybody anymore, like, for sure, I want to relate to other people. Um, but the fact of the matter is that I don't want their approval to be what, what rules my life anymore. And, and man, I'm not saying that I'm perfectly at this spot where I just don't care at all what the world thinks. I do sometimes still. But man, what I want is to only care about what God thinks and be faithful to him. Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for suffering because he knew that it was going to happen. And while the deaths of the apostles aren't recorded in Scripture, uh, we have other sources that suggest they were all martyred except for the apostle John who had to live out the rest of his life in exile on the island of Patmos. He had to get them ready for this. Um, however, one of the things that would help them to endure this opposition and this suffering that they were about to face was the fact that they would get to know what was going to happen in the end. And this is what Jesus had to say in John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, that's trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And then he launches into this awesome prayer in John 17. But uh, th this is basically how Jesus ends this conversation that he has with his disciples. You guys are about to experience a lot of trouble. This world's going to be difficult, it's not your home but take courage because I have overcome it. You know, I, I love history. I'm fascinated by the stories. Uh, I, I study a lot of history. My, my major in college was uh, social studies education. And uh, one of my favorite periods to study is World War II. I like to watch documentaries and, and read different things and stuff about what was going on there. And I always wonder what it would have been like to live during that time, like actually to live in the midst of that, especially maybe in a place that was closer to what was going on, like, uh, like the Great Britain. 
I think about what it would be like to live there in the early 1940s when, uh, when Hitler was starting to take over pretty much all of continental Europe, and uh, he had just conquered France within a month, really with no trouble, and, and his next sight is set on you. And so the Luftwaffe is, is flying by the, the, the German Air Force and dropping bombs on, on your city daily, destroying buildings, killing friends. And I, I just wonder if you had to sit there and think, man, like, how is my world going to change? How is this war going to end? Because if you were living in Great Britain in the early 1940s, you had to wonder if you were going to make it. Now, the thing is, I don't have that same tension that I'm sure they experienced living through that. Because I know how this story ends. It's history at this point. I know that the Allies were going to prevail and that the Nazis didn't end up winning. But they didn't know that. And I think that that would have made it very, very, very hard to persevere. I'm sure that there were many times that they probably felt very close to saying, let's just give up. I'm tired of getting bombed. Like, let's just surrender to them and, and you know, whatever. We'll, we'll fall in line with the new world order that they want to establish. But if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't give up. Because they know that victory is assured. Even though they would have to go through tons of losses and all sorts of difficulty, they know that they're going to win in the end. And knowing that makes you able to endure anything. And as Christians, we get that advantage. We know what the final outcome is. Like I said, circumstances in your life might change drastically. Your, your life might turn out way different than you think it's going to. But what you do know is that in the end, Jesus wins. That, that's, that's the message, right? Like, that's the message of the Bible. In the end, Jesus wins. He overcomes everything. Sin, death, his resurrection proved that. And we see in the book of Revelation that one day he's going to come back. He's going to slaughter the forces of darkness. Satan and his angels are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And then we are going to get to dwell in New Jerusalem with our Lord. We know that this world isn't the end for us. And no matter how bleak, how dark things may become, we can uh, choose to persevere because we know that our God wins in the end. And not only does our God win in the end, but he's invited us onto his side. We who were once his enemies are now his children. And so my question, will we live courageously in a world that opposes our message? Will we be stopped by fear or will we have courage knowing that our God is more powerful and greater than anything in this world? Will we let fear keep us silent about the message that God has given us or will we boldly proclaim it to a world that's in need? We know how it ends. We don't need to fear what man can do to us. I know that none of us want to go through pain. I know that none of us want to go through tribulation and trial. But God refines us through those things. And I'm not saying go out and try and seek it intentionally. But when it comes, we can be encouraged by knowing that we already know the end. We've read the end of the story. And while we live in the present, it's kind of like we're living in, like, like we're looking back at history at the same time. Because we know the future. I want to close by reminding you of a few things we talked about this morning. Just three big things. First, I want to remind you that God wants you to be with him. He went to prepare a place for us so that we could be with him. That's why he was leaving. And remember in John 15 that he said he wants us to abide in him so that we can bear fruit. So one day we're going to get to dwell with him, even, even more so than we are right now. But even right now, we can abide in him. And so my question for you, will you abide in him? What needs to change in your life 
for you to be closer to God. God wants us to love each other. This is crucial for us abiding in him, right? He said, uh, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another. So how can you, starting this week, practically love others in your life better? How can you choose to do that? Even those people that are really annoying you, the people that you've got beef with, the people that are getting on your nerves, whatever, how can you reconcile those things and love those people better? And finally, God invites us to follow him on his terms. Remember, Peter initially wanted to follow Jesus on his own terms. As long as Jesus was going to win, and and what, what Peter could see happening, then he was cool. But when Jesus got captured, when it was looking like Jesus was going to get crucified, things started to change. Peter wasn't so sure if he actually wanted to follow Jesus anymore. And of course, he did end up being faithful. Jesus reinstated him, and and he did. He followed Jesus all the way to the grave. Um, But my question for us is, man, are, are we willing to follow God on his terms? Maybe he's calling you to sacrifice in some way. Maybe he's calling you to go do something that's difficult. I don't know. Maybe your life is going to change in a way that you don't want it to. But will you still follow Jesus in the midst of that? Let's take some time to reflect on these things. I'm going to pray for us, and the band can come back up. Um, Lord, we love you, and uh, we just thank you that you've called us to yourself. Um, We thank you that we get the opportunity to abide in you, to follow you. God, we thank you that uh, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us that we would get to dwell in your house forever. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people that live courageously in this world, um, knowing that, yeah, we're going to have tribulation, but God, let us remember that you have overcome it. God, we want to worship you. We pray that you'd continue to refine us, to make us more like your son. God, that we would be willing to say yes to you no matter what our life looks like, no matter where you tell us to go. Uh, We love you, Lord. We lift this prayer for your son's awesome name. Amen. You guys, if you want to go ahead and stand and worship with us.